Father, indeed, we are thankful for Christ, our Savior, and our God. We're thankful that even now our worship of you, our prayers to you is acceptable, not because of what we have done, but because of what he has done for us. And so we pray now that you would be kind to us, that you would be gracious to us, that you would fill us with your spirit, that we might hear clearly your word to us today. We pray, Father, that the worship that we give you, both in the preaching and in the listening to the sermon, would be to the glory of Christ our Savior. And we pray it in his name. Amen. You may be seated. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Psalm 4 this morning. Psalm 4. This week we, or some of us anyway, celebrated St. Patrick's Day. And though this is not the venue to take a deep dive into his life, one of the things that you may or may not know is that uh, he's not actually Irish by birth. Uh, he was actually British, and yet as a young teen was kidnapped and brought to Ireland to work as a slave. And while he was there shepherding the fields in Ireland, God reminded him of the gospel of the glory of Christ that he had heard growing up, that his parents believed, and what's demonstrated again and again in his local church before his kidnapping. And as God reminded him of this gospel, of his saving mercy in Christ, Patrick believed he was saved. And he grew, despite that difficulty in his, or maybe because of that difficulty, in his faith in Christ. Eventually, he escaped back to his home to Britain, and he labored in the church as a pastor. And yet the Lord began to press upon him the people from which he was once enslaved. Hard, terrible, and sinful people. He believed that God was calling him to go back to Ireland to take the saving message of Christ to that people, that they might find the same joy and freedom as Patrick himself had experienced. But he knew this would be no easy task. And while in Ireland, Patrick would write and say daily, I expect murder, fraud, or captivity. Now imagine that was your situation for a moment. Every day you're seeking to serve the Lord and yet you wake up expecting murder, fraud, or captivity because of it. How, how do you keep loving those people? How do you keep serving those people with that kind of constant pressure? Moreover, how are you able to simply lay down your head at night and rest when you have a persistent threat to wake up to the next day. Patrick would say, I fear none of those things because of the promises of heaven. I have cast myself into the hands of God Almighty who rules everywhere. As the prophet said, cast thy thought upon God and he shall sustain me. We often talk about trust in God, and indeed I believe we do trust in God. But does that trust produce within us the same kind of confidence that it had, that it produced in Patrick? What about the kind of confidence that we see in David's life? He's the biblical example that we're going to see in our passage this morning, an example of one who felt all kinds of pressure in life, 
and yet remained confident in God. In our time this morning, we want to see what his confidence looked like that we might seek to imitate it by faith in Christ. And so I invite you this morning to stand with me as we read God's Word. Follow along as I read Psalm 4. To the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they, than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. This is God's word. You may be seated. Though other psalms may give some historical reference about when it was written, about the details of the circumstances, we don't have that here. Nevertheless, Psalm 4 is very straightforward and is easy to understand and apply. We're told the basic situation that David is facing, and that is that he is feeling pressure from all sides. As in other places, he's under criticism in and attack. And it's the kind of, it's the kind of situation that can weigh heavy on you can cause you to feel despair. And yet this psalm is no simple lament. It's not simply David complaining and saying, God, why is this happening to me? Take this away from me. No, David isn't so much complaining as he is calling out to God, confident that he knows that he will do something about the circumstances he's in. In fact, what's striking about this psalm is that David makes clear that he is so confident in God, despite all of this pressure, that is able to sleep well when the day is done. Because of this emphasis on sleep, many have called this an evening psalm. That is, this is the kind of psalm that you can pray before you go to bed at night. Just as we're about to rest our heads and our hearts for the night, instead of being bound up in stress and anxiety, we should be able to have joy and peace. Not because the circumstances have changed, but because of our confidence in God. So what about you? Is that how you sleep at night? If so, if you sleep with joy and comfort and peace, confident in God when pressed on every side, then come alongside and let us rejoice with David in God this morning. But if that is not you, then come alongside David and learn from him. See why you can sleep soundly at night. Learn how to find rest for your soul, not because you're confident in anything that you have done or are able to do, but because you are confident in God himself and what he can do. David's confidence is revealed in three ways in Psalm 4. First, we see that David was confident in prayer. Confident in prayer. Because of his confidence in God, David is confident in prayer. We, we get a sense of urgency at the beginning of this psalm. 
we saw that David will address and even correct some other people in the course of this psalm, but notice where he begins. His first response is not to talk to other people, but his first response to trouble is prayer. I love when people say, well, if nothing else, we can pray. What do you mean, nothing else? That's the first thing that we do. We're confident in God. The first thing we should do is go to Him in prayer, just like David. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. Here we see what is driving David to pray, namely the character of God. And when we look across the pages of the Bible, he's not alone. Those in the rest of the Psalms, those in other parts of the Bible, uh, most often have the most vigorous and hopeful prayers, even honest prayers, because they know who God is. They understand His character. And if we want to have confidence in prayer, then we should also reflect on God's character. We should reflect on God's character. When David calls on the God of his righteousness, he's being clear about two things. First of all, that God himself is just and righteous. Because of that, David knows that regardless of the slings and arrows of his enemies, God will vindicate him. He will not let injustice go uncorrected, even if it's on the last day. God will always vindicate the righteous. Though David is misjudged and he is slain by his enemies, David knows that God knows his heart. And David doesn't have to be sinless in order to make this appeal. He doesn't have to be sinless to say, vindicate me, bring me justice. He just knows that he has to have integrity on the issues that he's being criticized for. God knows the ins and the outs of his heart and all of its moral complexity, and God is confident that, excuse me, David is confident that God will judge, that he will do so in righteousness. But there's more. David says, answer me when I call, O God, of my righteousness. Not only is God himself righteous, but he is the giver of David's righteousness. He is the source of his righteousness. He knows that his standing before the Lord is not because of what he has done, but because of what the Lord has done for him. I don't think David clearly saw the justification that we have sung about this morning that would come from his greater son, Jesus, but he still understood that the source of him's right standing before God the Father was God himself, the righteousness that was given to him by faith. And so even today, that is the basis for our standing before God. That is the basis for our prayers. Not our righteousness, not because we have earned it, not because we have merited it, not because we live so well, but because we know Christ has lived for us. It's on the basis of His living, righteous life that is now imputed to us that we can come before God in prayer. We can have confidence in prayer if we, like David, reflect on His character. And secondly, if we remember God's help. If we remember God's help. Notice the past tense in David's words. You have given me relief when I was in distress. That word distress has behind it the idea of being in a tight place. It's like a grape in the wine press. David has nowhere to go and yet God has brought relief. That is, he had opened up the space around him and gave him some breathing room. David didn't have any resources out of himself to change the circumstances, but God did. He was desperate for help and God was gracious to him. Now, that past help that David has received gives him confidence to ask for present help in this time of distress. Again, what is this pointing us to but God's character? If he has been faithful to help in the past, 
we can be sure he will behave helpful and, or excuse me, faithful to help in the present. Unlike us, he is not fickle and inconsistent. You know, several years ago, when my older kids were younger, they enjoyed reading uh, stories and the mythologies of the Greek and the Roman and the Norse gods. And I would hear these conversations about them, about who was better and who did what and all these things. And one time I remember saying, hey, why don't you stop and think about how all of those gods, so-called, compared to the God of the Bible? How are they the same and how are they different? I remember the conversations that followed. And, and what they saw, thankfully, was that these so-called gods were really just examples of exalted humanity. They have power and authority, but they are selfish. They're erratic, capricious, even lecherous. One minute they're befriending someone, and the next they're cursing them and betraying them just because of some small slight. Loved ones, that's not the God of the Bible. David is able to look back over the course of his life and see the times when the Lord has been merciful to him, when he has given him relief from his distress. He's able to remember the help that God has provided and so has confidence that God will help in the present. David can call out to God, be gracious to me and hear my prayer because he knows the reliable commitment of God's character. If he's experienced grace in the past, he has no reason to doubt that God will not give him grace in the present. The question is, is that how we pray? Is that how we pray when we come before God? When I was in high school, our church's senior pastor had left and we were looking for a new one. And uh, we did some slightly different things in the, in the course of the, the morning service in the meantime. And our minister of music uh, asked some older uh, people, some older men to pray in the service right before the offertory to help fill in the gaps and to help honor them for their service in the Lord. For these men had all been pastors and deacons and now they were uh, and had been leaders in their churches and now they were with us in their retirement. And so he wanted to give them the opportunity uh, to, to pray and to lead the congregation in prayer. And if I, would, if I had longer, uh, I, could, uh, I could go a whole hour just telling you the stories and lessons that came out of those prayers of those older men. But this morning, I just want to tell you about one lesson that I learned uh, because it came from my own grandpa. When, uh, when he prayed, he did not immediately make it his business to start asking for things. He didn't say, Dear God, we're glad to come before you in prayer, and now we need this, 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 and this. That's not how he prayed. He would usually pray for a few minutes, and at least half, the first half, was all adoration and address of God. So, so he, would, he would ransack from the Bible and his memory of the Bible all of these biblical titles and expressions for God and who he is for his people, all in King James English, no less. All of the youth used to sit over on this side in one section together, and I was sitting over there the first time that he prayed, and when he was done, I was actually embarrassed. Because as we sat down and the offering plates were beginning to be passed, I overheard a youth sitting behind me, muttering to a friend that she was thankful that was over. And she began criticizing the prayer that my grandfather had offered. In her mind, he was just long-winded. But God was very kind to me that week. 
And with that same minister of music that had organized these prayers, I was going to the hospital to visit someone. And as we were waiting, we were talking about the service and the, 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 the older men praying came up and he began talking about my grandfather. And here's what he said, John, I just love listening to Earl pray. And as he began to talk about why it was encouraging to him, I began to realize that what my youthful friend had mistaken for long-windedness was really just biblical priority. It stayed with me, and as I thought about that, I've seen many other authors bring this out. When we look to those that pray in the Bible, they seem to spend time reflecting on God and who He is and His character and how He has helped in the past way more than we typically do. When we read the prayers of the Bible, you find that they are driven by the prayer's knowledge of God. How they pray and what they pray is based on who they understand God to Perhaps the reason why some of us struggle in prayer or perhaps lack confidence in prayer is because we don't know God very well. Maybe we've been trained to come to the Bible in the mornings, moving quickly, looking for some devotional thought, some immediate applications that we can feel like that God has spoken to us, we've learned something and we're ready for the day. Or maybe we come to the Bible and we do deep dives. And, and, and we are working our way slowly and repetitively through books of the Bible, feeling like we're genuinely studying. But God is more like a lab experiment than a person. We've come to log lots of data about Him and could easily and rightly explain Him. We could pass a theology test, but we don't actually know Him. In both circumstances, what we've missed is something far more profound, a deep understanding and appreciation of God Himself experientially. That, that, that our time in the Word has led to communion with the one who gave us the Word. In the long run, there could be nothing more helpful, more practical, more nourishing for our souls than the clear vision of God that brings us into intimate fellowship with Him. Not making God in our image, but letting Him tell us from the Scriptures who He is and what He promises to be and us depending upon that in prayer. There's nothing that gives us more that gives us more confidence in prayer than a deep theological and experiential knowledge of God's character. David displayed confidence in prayer because of that. But notice he also shows confidence before others. Confidence before others. The confidence that David has in God leads him to be confident before others. In verses 2 through 6, David shifts from talking directly to God to speaking, as it were, to those around him in the nation of Israel. And there are different kinds of people that he is addressing here. He's addressing those who are slandering him, those that are indignant that he's being slandered, and third, those who are suffering despair over the whole situation. Each of them needs something different. And because of his confidence in God, David has something to say to them that is helpful and wise. First, we see that he is able to confidently confront the slanderers. Confront the slanderers. David accuses, or excuse me, addresses those who would bring empty accusations against him in verse 2. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? David's reputation is under attack by men who are prominent in Israel. That word men has the sense of importance behind it. If you have an ESV, the footnote says men of rank. And apparently these were men who bear some kind of influence and leadership in Israel. They're the kind of people that should have been loyal to David 
and that should have helped lead others to be loyal to him. They should have supported their king. Instead, they're gossiping about him and undermining his authority. We have no idea what the nature of the slander is that David was enduring. All we know is that his honor has been turned to shame. And at the end of the day, the details don't matter too much. David is clear that their vain words are based on lies. They're spreading lies about him. They're saying things that are not true about him. And the the reality is now the honor that he held in the minds of some people is now being turned to shame. What defense can he offer though? David says, despite their words, they ought to know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. That phrase set apart is somewhat rare in the Old Testament. The only other time we see it used is in Exodus, when the Lord says that he will set apart Israel from Egypt. If you remember, God brought upon Egypt all manner of plagues, blood and boil, flies and frogs, even the death of the firstborn in the land. But Israel was spared from it all. They were set apart as God's special people. And David sees himself among that people. He is part of the godly. That is, those who have received God's covenantal promises of unfailing love and who have responded with faithfulness to the one who loved them. This describes all who were in Israel that were true Israel. Not just ethnically descendants of Abraham, but true children by virtue of their faith in God. And this especially described David. Because he wasn't just part of the the larger people of Israel. Remember that God came to him specifically and gave specific promises to him. That he would always allow a son of David to be on the throne of Israel. And one son in particular would come whose kingdom would last forever. He is doubly set apart. And David is confident in that. Young people, I think this is especially helpful for you to lock in on. I've been in junior high, I've been in high school, I've been in college, and all too often our peers can misjudge our motives, they can misunderstand our actions, and it can result in painful gossip that is spread about us. It is painful to have others share not only true information that makes us look bad, but especially false information that makes us look bad. Gossip that slanders our character. And so I would have two pieces of advice for you, and really for everybody. Number one, don't be that person. Don't be a gossip. Fight the temptation to share information that makes other people look bad, even in the form of a prayer request. But second, remember who you are in Christ. Remember who you are in Christ. If you remember that, then it won't matter what other people say. It won't matter what other people think because God knows who we are. And so the opinions will not change who we are. Their gossip will not alter God's love for us, our acceptance of us, if we are His people, if we have been set apart for His glory. And so we have no less of a defense against the false accusations that David did because we are in Christ. Maybe you're not in Christ this morning. As we have sung and as we have preached every week, we we see that the Bible is clear that the whole world is accountable to God for their lives, each and every one of us. And the really bad news is that when we are given this freedom brought into this world and say, hey, go, what do we do? We say, I don't want to go after God. I'm going to rebel and I'm going to sin. I'm not going to love Him. 
and I'm not going to love the people that are around me. And thus, in, a, in offending an infinitely holy and glorious God, we deserve death and hell. And yet, in unfathomable love, God chooses to send His own Son into the world to take upon Himself death and hell, which we deserve on His cross, such that when we turn our eyes and our life and our affections away from sin and hear this glorious good news of salvation offered freely in Christ, and we trust that God will make good on that promise, when we turn away from sin and trust Jesus to be the one that brings forgiveness in life with God, then we are reconciled to God. The, the, the fullness of the love that He has shown us in Christ rebounds back to Him as we love Him. And now we are no longer enemies under His, His threat of judgment, but now we are friends, even family, because of what Christ has done. We are considered righteous in Christ. His righteousness is counted towards our spiritual ledger, and we have a new identity in Him. And because of that, Paul asks in Romans 8, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Your friends don't justify you. The culture doesn't justify you. Nothing in the world justifies you. God is the one who justifies. Therefore, God's opinion is the only one that ultimately matters. Who is to condemn, Paul says? Christ Jesus is the one who is raised. More than that, who is at the right hand of God? Who is indeed interceding for us? Jesus is praying for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, Paul goes on to say, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. This is the confidence that we have in the face of slanderers. Our identity in Christ has set us apart from the world and secures our eternal salvation. Friend, are you lacking that confidence this morning? Then please turn away from your sins. Turn away from every vain pursuit and turn toward God who freely offers His love to you today. And loved ones, let us embrace and be reminded and rejoice in this confidence because it will allow us to not only confront slanderers but also counsel the indignant. With our confidence in God, we can counsel the indignant. Not all in Israel were slandering David. Not everyone has set their hearts against him, just the opposite. Some were indignant, some were upset at how he was being mistreated. Some rightly loved their king and were incensed at those who were trashing his reputation. David has counsel for them as well, verse 4. Be angry and do not sin. We could just leave that at hang and we would, no, that's difficult, <laughs> right? I don't think any of us uh, can say, oh, I'm never angry. If you can, I would love to meet you after the service. I heard a speaker several years ago at a conference go out of his way, make this argument, argue with people in the audience to say for Christians, well, really for anybody, but Christians should know anger is always wrong. Anger is always a sin. Now, I will gladly concede that Christians are often angry about the wrong things. We are angry and we do sin. But... James says we ought to be slow to anger. It, it assumes there's a point where anger is okay, but we ought to be slow to get there. Proverbs extols the virtues and the practical benefits of being slow to anger. And Paul even quotes this verse in his counsel to the Ephesian Christians. Be angry and do not sin. So it seems like there are times when it's right to be angry. How do we know what those times are? Well, nothing is more powerful than an example. And I think Jesus gives us a powerful example in Mark chapter 3. 
If you recall, he's in the synagogue and the leaders are watching to see if he is going to heal a man who has a withered hand. Now, now here's the thing. Those, those religious leaders, those Pharisees, they've invited this guy specifically to be at this, this synagogue because they know Jesus is going to be there and he heals. And they want to trap him because they think it's wrong for him to heal on the Sabbath. So what is this guy with the withered hand? Someone who, should, who, should, who can't live a normal life in that time? Who should be pitied? Who should be helped? He's just a tool for them to trap Jesus. And Jesus sees this, and Mark tells us in chapter 3, verse 5, when he looked, at, he looked at them, knowing what was in their minds, he looked at them with anger. He was angry, we're told, and grieved at their hardness of heart. The Pharisees were so unwilling to acknowledge Jesus' divine power, His loving coming into this world, the, the grace that was shown from God in His ministry of healing because they did not want Him to be their Messiah, that they were willing to be hateful towards their fellow man. I think that's a good standard of judging the purity or the rightness of our own anger. It doesn't look like Jesus kind of anger? Is it, is it an anger that's not really saying, I've been offended, but God's image bearers are being offended, that God's name is being tarnished? And so here, you have people who are rightly angry because David, at least in this case, has not sinned. He is the Lord's anointed, and yet there are hard hearts that are set against him. And David says to them, listen, be angry and do not Sin. How can they do that? How can they feel righteous indignation but keep from sinning themselves? He tells them in the next verses. He says, listen, ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. David says, be silent. Listen, don't run your mouth because you're tempted to run too far. Allow it to get away from you. It's like that match that James says can just get out of control and become a wildfire and you're going to end up sinning and gossiping and saying all kinds of things that you shouldn't do. Don't speak ill of them. Instead, ponder in your own hearts in your bed. Think over the situation. Think about your motivation. Think about why you want to respond in the privacy of your heart when you lay in bed at night, when it's just you and God. Examine your heart. But do more than that, he says. Don't just reflect in silence. Offer the right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. In other words, live the way God has told you to live. Proactively be the righteous people that God wants you to be. Let God be the one who vindicates you. Don't plot to take revenge. Even today, Christ has died and has been raised to life that we, His people, might live lives that are living, holy, and acceptable before Him. And so even when the world comes against us, when the world slanders us, the world gossips us, we do not get down in the mud with them. We offer the right sacrifices and we put our trust in the Lord. We offer the sacrifices of our lives, the sacrifice of praise that Hebrews 13 talks about, and we put our confidence in the Lord. He is the one who will vindicate us, either in this life or in the life to come. And either way, it's fine. Because our confidence is in God, not our circumstances or the world. David is confident in the Lord. And so finally, he is able to offer words to comfort the despairing. Comfort the despairing. In verse 6, he says, there are many who say, who will show us some good? These are the people in Israel who are looking around at the, un uh, the unrest, the discontent of others, and the wondering, is there ever going to be peace? Is there anything good going on in Israel? Perhaps they are like the indignant, 
They value David as king, but rather than getting riled up about the situation, these people get depressed. They see the affliction of their king, and they can't see a time when it's going to get better. Now, we've all known, perhaps we're one of them, people who have prayed and prayed and prayed for someone in difficulty, and nothing changes, and we can get discouraged. We can say, God, aren't you listening? Can't you see what they're going through? And we stop praying because we're discouraged. David says, we can't see those kind of people and that they're struggling to, to remain confident in God and just say, oh, well, know that there are brothers and sisters. If nothing else, we pray for them like David is doing here. But what else does he do? He says, lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. This is a reference back to number six and the prayer of blessing that God gave to the priests to pronounce upon the people, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. David says, God, you say you want that for your people. You command the priest to pray for it. Well, now I'm praying for the same thing. There are people that are so blinded and so in despair, they cannot see any goodness that is coming from your hand, O God. So God, give more goodness. Give more goodness that they might be able to see it and be at peace. Because of his confidence in God, David is confident in prayer. He is confident before others. In the last few verses, we see this that David is confident to rest. David is confident to rest. After his urgent appeal and reflection on the lives of those around him, he ends where he started in prayer. Less urgency, but no less confidence in God. In fact, in these last verses, David revels in the gifts that God has given to him that spring up from his confidence. What, what has God produced in David? First of all, abundant joy. Abundant joy. David says, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. What was what, he talking about? He's talking about those people that never seem to be satisfied with what God has given to them. He keeps saying, I want more, I want that, I don't have that, I need this. And others are content and even overwhelmed by what God has given them. The first group only seems to have joy when the harvest is abounding, when the bank account is full, when the cars are running well. That's when they're happy. And of course, grain and wine and all good gifts are things that we should not disparage. We don't say, oh, they don't mean anything. They do mean something. They're evidence of, of, of God's grace in our life. But, but what happens when, when those gifts are not coming as, as hard and fast as they used to? What happens when all the cards are breaking down at once, when the bank account's thin? Do we have any less joy? No, because those things are not indicators of God's love for us. God can love poor people, right? So whether God's gifts are in abundance or missing altogether, our happiness should not be changed. Why? Because our happiness is in God. Our confidence is in Him. Otherwise, our joy only rises as high as our earthly possessions. And I'll be honest, some of the happiest, joyful, most content people I've met are people that live in poverty that would knock your socks off in third world countries. One, one time I was in West Africa and I saw people just throw trash on the floor and the winds blow it into big piles. And two little kids, probably three and five, playing in the trash pile. I thought. They were actually looking for food in the trash pile. And what sent this girl into massive praise was finding a empty Del Monte fruit cup that still had a few drops of syrup in it. You'd have thought someone handed her a million dollars. She was so happy by what she had. Most of us, maybe probably none of us in this country, understand that level of poverty. 
And yet we can also be really, really slow to give God thanks and praise and experience joy by what we do or do not have. David says, don't be like that. David says, understand your confidence is in God. Love Him more than His gifts. He says, God has put more joy in my heart than the joy that others have when their grain and their wine abound. Why? Because His joy is in God, not God's gifts. And even more so for us, the fullness of God's promises, the fullness of His blessings have been manifested in Jesus. How much more ought Christians be joyful? Jesus spoke of the importance of remaining in Him, having His words remain in us, that we might bear much fruit for His glory before He went to the cross. Why did He tell this to the disciples? In John 15, He says, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you, and your joy may be full. This is where the fullness of joy is found, in knowing and abiding in Christ and God Himself. So Spurgeon has quite the quip when he says, Christ in the heart is better than corn in the barn or wine in the vat. David was confident to rest because of his abundant joy and his abiding peace. His abiding peace. This is the second gift that God has produced within him. It's important to understand we get to the end of the psalm, David says, hey, I'm going to go have a good night's sleep. Nothing has changed. The pressure is still there. The detractors are still after him. But he's not worried about it. His circumstances haven't changed, but David has changed. He says, in peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. That's why he has abiding peace. Because his heart rests in God alone and not the externals of his consequences. I can have everything quiet and peaceful around me, then I can relax. David says, no, the the world is burning and it's okay, I'm going to sleep soundly in Jesus. Well, he would have said Yahweh, but Jesus is Yahweh, we know now, so there you go. Rather than peace based on ever-changing details of life, it's founded on the never-changing God. That's how the godly should sleep. Not in fits and turmoil, worried and haggard by life's demands and appointments. Calvin says because David was able to sleep so well, he says he was able to sleep so well because he was protected by God's power. And if you're protected by God's power, you might as well have all the armies of the world as your defense. It's no surprise that we see the same kind of joy and peace for the new covenant people of God. Paul could sit in a Roman prison for the gospel and write to his cherished friends, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say it, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. If David could have abiding peace, how much more the humblest Christian? This is the vision of the believer's evening prayer. When Christians go to bed at night and we lay our heads down and we, 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 we have our eyes still open, we're thinking about all that's going on in our life, we should be able to lift up our concerns to God and leave them at the throne of grace. Knowing we are secure in Christ, kept by God our Father who loves us, allowing us to sleep like a newborn baby, confident in God. Someone like that was a man named Nicholas Ridley. On October 16th, 1555, Ridley and his friend Hugh Latimer were executed side by side. The once influential pastors in the Church of England, Queen Mary was loyal to the Catholic Church and sentenced them both to death when she took the throne. For what? For preaching the gospel of grace. 
they would be executed by burning at the stake, a painful way to go, as you might imagine. And the night before his execution, as Ridley is locked in prison, his brother comes to him and says, I, I want to come and I want to stay with you in your final hours. I want to be an encouragement and a comfort to you. And you know what Ridley said? He said, go home. Go home. He said, go home. Don't, don't stay here with me. His brother says, he said that he meant to go to bed and sleep as quietly as if he ever did in his life. He did not fear the pyre because he knew he would die honoring Christ. If you're like me, that's, that's, that's hard to think about. I'm thinking, really? You did that, Ridley? I think he did that. It's hard to imagine me doing that, but that's on me because this should not be all that unusual for God's people. Patrick, Ridley, thousands, maybe tens of thousands of others have done the exact same thing. They have suffered death without fear because of their confidence in God. The passage that we read this, or was read for us this morning, when Jesus says, don't, fill those that can, don't fear those that can destroy just the body. Fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. All these people were just helpless believers throwing themselves on the all-powerful, all-good God who cares for them and keeps them. That should be normal Christianity. And so today we have to ask ourselves, where does our confidence lie? Have we looked to God through the gift of His Son and so experienced forgiveness and life in Him? And do we have that kind of confidence in Him? And if so... Practically how we live, is our confidence in what we can do and what we have in our circumstances? Or is our confidence always in God, regardless of what's happening in our life? Tonight, tonight when your head hits the pillow, how are you going to sleep? How are you going to pray? Father, I hope that all of us will be able to rest well tonight. All who know you in Christ not because of the intensity of our faith or the depth of our faith, the strength of our faith, but because of the depth and the strength and the intensity of your character and your sovereign power and the love that you have shown us. That our confidence might be in you and therefore we might be able to sleep soundly in you. Father, we're thankful not only for David's example here, but for the example of all of your people who have looked to you in faith and found you to be a faithful God. Father, because of all of the past grace that you have shown us, not just in our li lives individually, but, but through the, the massive promise keeping that you did to bring all things up to this point in history, having sent your son and have raised him from the dead and given us faith in him. Father, the, the worldwide church has every reason to be confident in you. So Father, we pray that you would give us that confidence. Help us to see you clearly. Help us to see your character and your help. Help us to, to build within us a great confidence to come before you in prayer knowing that you will hear and that you will answer and that you will give what is best to us in response. Help us not to fear those that would criticize or detract no matter how small or how powerful, but Father, help us to see you and to seek after an abiding joy and peace that you give us because we have confidence in you through what you've done for us in Christ. As we continue in a spirit of prayer, ask the Lord how you might respond to this message of Psalm 4 and the example that we see of confidence in Him.